the expectations are changing. Uh, in May of last year, Stanford did a study. They surveyed 2,500 Americans uh, ages 20 to 64. A third of those Americans said they cannot do their job from home. Another third said they can do some portion of their job from home, but not all of it. And a third of them said they can do 100% of their job from home. Uh, earlier this year, IBM did a survey. They surveyed 14,000 workers, and they learned that in 2020, one in five of those workers voluntarily changed employers, not just jobs, but employers. And of those who changed employers, 58% were either Gen Zers or Millennials. So IBM asked the people who changed employers, why did you leave? What was it that, that pushed you over the edge to change the job in the middle of a pandemic? They gave them nine different possible reasons. They asked them to rank them and how relevant they were to their decision. The number one answer was a desire for flexibility in their schedule or work location. Salary increases and or promotions finished fifth. So you have an opportunity. More people are able to work from home than ever before. More people want to work from home than ever before. And the American Rescue Plan Act uh, which you'll hear more about in the next session, specifically targets the expansion of broadband. So if you couldn't compete before here because you didn't have fast internet, you can change that. Now you can compete. This is an example of what I'm talking about. These are screenshots uh, from an Instagram page called Cheap Old Houses. Cheap Old Houses does nothing but post pictures and information of cheap old houses that are for sale in small towns across the country. And they have 1.6 million followers. People are very interested in this. So the picture on the left is a house in Chester. This is from June. Uh, it was for sale for about $86,000. It has 26,515 likes. Uh, the one on the right is a house in Darlington. It was for sale for a little less than $80,000. It had over 43,000 likes, including Aaron Napier, who's on the HGTV show Hometown. So I'll show you this to illustrate a point. It used to be that you would grow up in a small town in South Carolina and you would dream about moving to New York or Chicago or LA or, or San Francisco and making it big and, and succeeding in your industry. But after 2020, we have a lot of people who have done that. They, they've gotten the job they want, but they're not happy where they are. They sit in their apartment in Manhattan. It's 700 square feet, which is the average size. They pay $3,000 a month in rent, which is the average cost. They got a roommate they don't even like. They sit there, they scroll on Instagram, looking for a house in Darlington they can buy for $80,000. They can spend $100,000 making it their dream home. They can pay $800 in a mortgage payment for the next 30 years and live like a king or queen in your hometown. But it's competitive. You have to know what it is they're looking for, what you need to have, and how to position yourself to attract them and retain them. So with us today, we have Jen Bonet. Jen's the Vice President of Innovation and Entrepreneurship with the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Jen spends her time creating an atmosphere and an ecosystem in Savannah to attract remote tech workers, to make them feel a part of the community and to keep them there long-term. We have Irene Tyson, who's the Director of Planning at Boudreaux. Um, Irene was going to talk about creative placemaking. Uh, she can help you with that location envy that Andrew talked about this morning. And we have Jim Stritzinger, who's the director of the South Carolina Broadband Office, who will get us started. Uh, if you've never heard of the South Carolina Broadband Office, it's because it's like 
three weeks old, something like that. <laughs> so it's brand new. And he's going to talk to you about the one thing that you absolutely must have. None of this other stuff matters if you don't have it, and that's high-speed broadband internet. Jim. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's an honor to be here and really to share this stage. Whoops. Got a little extra feedback. And to share the stage with this talented crew here. So my job today is to uh, take you on a journey and teach you a little bit about broadband. This Actually, it's a very complicated subject. It's technically complex. There's a lot of uh, socioeconomic pressures on it. It's a very, you know, it's, a, it's expensive. And you'll notice I have an interesting title. It's called The Next, Next Greatest Thing. So in order for us to go forward, I want to start by giving everybody a little bit of a history lesson. In 1937, some of you may remember from your history classes, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed a very special piece of legislation. It's called the Rural Electrification Act in 1937. Does anybody remember that? Or no, remember it from your class? Some of you may have moms or dads or grandparents um, that went through this, but the Rural Electrification Act did exactly that. It, it pushed electricity into rural America. This book that I'm showing on the screen is called The Next Greatest Thing, and it was written in 1984 at the 50-year anniversary of putting electricity into rural America. The amazing thing about this book is it tells stories of life before electricity and after electricity on the American farm. And can anybody here imagine what the United States would be like today if we did not have electricity in our farms. I, I cannot comprehend the United States without electricity in our rural areas right now. So this book is amazing, and as I was flipping through it, something became obvious to me, is if you replace the word electricity with the word internet, guess what? History is repeating itself right now. And this is our generation's turn, and I'm taking this on personally, professionally, it's our generation's turn to do something really special for the state of South Carolina. So I want to talk to you about broadband now and, um, and bring it to life in a way that you may not have heard before. I'm going to introduce you to a couple of terms, make you a little smarter, give you a little bit of context to work with. But there's three special words when we talk about broadband. There's the word access, there's the word adoption, and there's the word use. And you all, as community leaders, need to know these words because they're very different. The word access is about physical infrastructure. It's do your residents have the ability to get internet in their residential home? Um, this has nothing to do with affordability, by the way. The word access is 100% about engineering. Um, the word adoption is the choice that residents or businesses make to subscribe to the internet. So I, I started off talking about electricity, but I promise you internet is very different than electricity. Um, with electricity, you've got principally a monopoly in an area. A, a electric provider has, you know, a monopoly of all of the customers in that area. Every home that sits within that ring is part of the electric co-op or part of that service territory. Not so much with internet, right? You all know it's competitive and not everybody has to sign up. So access, adoption, and use is really important. You may have some members of your community that have access that have chosen not to adopt. That's a very different problem to solve. 
Um, and then you have others that don't have it, can't get it at any cost. So to kind of unpack this and get under, under it a little bit and understand the dynamic, you have to know the Federal Communications Commission defines internet to be 25 megabits per second down, 3 megabits per second up. So that sets the benchmark by which we measure the whole United States. And um, one of the things I, want, I wanted to share with you all, some, some tools you can use right away. There's a really cool app. It's called Speed Test. And some of you may know about this app. If you don't, I'm going to give you a little homework, and I'm going to check in with you tomorrow. Download this app for your phone. It's made by a company called Ookla in Seattle, and it's the global leader for internet speed testing. So when you put this app on your phone, you can press the go button, and you can see how fast your internet is wherever you happen to be. And this is really important because you want your residents to have good, high-speed, high-quality internet. And something that's also really cool that I'm super proud of is we're one of the few states in the U.S. that actually has really an artificial intelligence model where every time you guys run speed tests, our maps get smarter. So this is something I've personally been working on quite a bit, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about it. When you look at Internet, um, here's a, a map of our state, and this shows us where we have different types of technology in the state of South Carolina. Um, when you see the dark areas, and I know it's a little hard to see right now, but the dark black areas on the map represent areas of our state that have fiber available. Um, the blue areas represent areas of the state that have cable, high-speed cable service. The uh, copper-colored areas are where we have DSL, that's internet via phone lines. The aqua-colored areas are fixed wireless. Um, and pay special attention for a minute, I hope you can see it. There's some pink areas on the map. Those pink areas are places where if you live there in South Carolina, you cannot get internet service. Not available. There are no providers at any cost in those areas of our state. And those are the things that keep me awake at night, those pink areas. Based on the technology you have, that determines how fast you can drive. It's just like if I bought Jen a Ferrari, Jen can drive 200 miles an hour if she wants to. It might be a little crazy, but she would do it. <laughs> um, if I buy Jen a minivan, not so much, right? So the same is true with internet technology. The, t the, the type of technology that you bring into your home determines how fast you can drive. So um, I'm going to show you a different map of the state of South Carolina. The green areas are the areas of our state that meet that FCC threshold, 25.3 or higher. So green is good. The white areas are where nobody lives. And it's important for you all to know those things, right? Because if I drop $10 million in your driveway, sir, <laughs> and I say, go fix some internet, I don't want you spending any money where it already exists or where nobody lives. That's kind of a waste. So that's my, excuse me, that's my job at a state level is to make sure we manage our financial resources very carefully. So I'm going to give you a couple of specific examples um, that we've done recently. This is Richland County. You can see the dark black areas are where we have fiber in Richland County. This is home to the state capitol. Um, blue areas are where we have cable. Um, green is good. White, nobody lives there. And now you're going to see a couple of areas. It's called Lower Richland County. For those of you who have been to Congaree National Park and know that area, Eastover, Gadsden, those are areas where you begin to see freckles on the map. Those dark freckles are where we have a lot of homes and the internet service is not so good. So what I've been doing is breaking up the state into um, target areas. 
And um, you'll notice the blue line on the bottom right of the map now. This is where we identified a water and sewer project in Lower Richland County. And guess what we did? There's a national best practice called dig once. And that's the concept that if you're going to dig up a road, guess what? Let's fix some internet at the same time. So we were able to pull off a project in Lower Richland County. I would ask you all to put dig once on your public policy proposals and make that happen locally. We're going to try to make that at the state level as well. And I'm sure all of you are thinking right about now, how can I get a map of my county? How can I get a personal map? We have a website for you, Jen. Savannah doesn't have one of these. We have the first broadband map store in the United States. And yes, it is true. You can go to scdigitaldrive.com and you can put a broadband map of your county, pick whichever one, put it in your shopping cart and you check out. And you can download maps of your local county. So there's a whole fresh set of maps out there for the state and every county so you can find those. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about money and then I'm gonna hand the baton over the state of South Carolina, uh, Jake mentioned, we are proud to be in the broadband business um, and, and really getting it done. So the broadband office is brand new as of July 1st with uh, support of the governor and the General Assembly. Everybody's on board with this topic now. And I have the honor of being the first director of the broadband office. I work in an amazing state agency called the Office of Regulatory Staff. Um, we started our mission last summer by investing $50 million um, we did a couple of things. We helped students get Wi-Fi hotspots. So a lot of your students um, went home and had to do their homework, so we gave them portable Wi-Fi hotspots. We invested $20 million in that and basically turned a state agency into a cell phone store overnight. We deployed 92,000 devices all over the state. Huge effort. Um, we also began investing for the first time in broadband in the state. Um, we invested $17 million and uh, passed almost 19,000 homes, and that was done in 90 days. An extraordinary effort. Um, on July 13th, we just announced uh, awards for the Rural Broadband Grant Program. So we collaborated with the South Carolina Department of Commerce, and I'm going to show you three pictures. So this is the map of the state of South Carolina as of July 1st. Check out the highlight areas. It's a little hard to see, but you see some blue and some yellow. This is a combination. The blue is federal investment that just happened. The yellow is state investment that just happened, along with a boatload of private sector match. This area, as you see, represents about $120 million that just got invested. It has not been constructed yet, but 18 months from now, check out the difference in the state of South Carolina. So this is a map of what the state will look like in October of 2022. So um, pretty amazing um, work and a lot of stuff going on. I hope you all are proud of this effort and we'll see this kind of thing happening. Um, some other things to talk about, we've broken up the state into uh, lots of areas. We're gonna be focused on this, doing our planning. Um, I do have a training class for those of you that want to become a broadband community champion, I would love to introduce you to this topic. I personally teach it, and um, I've trained over 100 community leaders to get up to speed on this topic. It's complicated, but we welcome that. And uh, I'm going to quit there because simply ponder this question. 
site selection nowadays for an employer to come to a community is not just about is there internet for their business. It's also about once your staff members go home, can they get internet in their house, right? The, the, the days of working and going home and having no connectivity are over. So if we don't get this residential internet thing correct, you know, your communities are going to be really hurting. So I'm going to let Jen tell you a little more about bringing the remote workers to town. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Awesome. Um, so you're probably wondering what somebody from Georgia is doing at the MA. SC conference. I actually live in Hilton Head and work in Savannah, so don't tell my boss, okay? I do economic development for the state of Georgia, uh, but I live in South Carolina, and I'm going to talk about remote work, how I became an expert at it, and how you too can attract talent to your towns. Uh, this is me in People Magazine circa 2001, 2002, right before I met uh, Jim, who I eventually uh, went to work for here in this region. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a tech entrepreneur turned ecosystem builder. I am not an economic developer, I do not think of myself that way. Every time somebody talks to me about it, I say, no, I'm not that. My job is to look at a community and say, okay, if we wanted to build a startup or entrepreneurial ecosystem, what components are missing and how do I put together partnerships and, and programs to fill those gaps, right? So I'm kind of a puzzle maker. Um, I've done a lot of tech entrepreneurship, some with Jim as my boss. Uh, I've raised about $52 million in venture capital and angel capital over three companies, had three successful exits, and now I've been in Savannah just over three months. Prior to Savannah, I was in Atlanta where I did ecosystem building for about 10 years. Seven years of that, I actually ran the state of Georgia's technology incubator, ATDC, the Advanced Technology Development Center, which is the state of Georgia's technology incubator. Uh, which was, rec uh, while I was there, it became one of the top 15 incubators for technology in the world. Um, so I have a deep tech background, but I'm really passionate about entrepreneurship and how entrepreneurship can actually help us come out of this pandemic. I became an expert in remote work um, last summer. Uh, this is an article that I was quoted in about Savannah, Georgia, re relocating tech workers. So my job in Savannah is to try and figure out how to make Savannah be a startup tech town, right? And when I got there, what I noticed is we had no talent, we had no office space, and we had no money, right? What three things do you need to do this, right? So here I am trying to build this ecosystem with none of that. So we've got, now got a lot more commercial development going on, a lot of money available for office buildings and things like that. So we've got some development going on. We now have a co-working space in Savannah, Georgia. I've got some seed funding to build the seed fund, but remote work like became my thing, right? March 12th, I was sent home having been exposed to somebody that had COVID-19 and told to self-isolate for 14 days, but you couldn't get a test. So I'm like depressed on my couch. And I'm like, what do I do? And I'm like, wow, huh. After three days of feeling sorry for myself, I was like, what am I going to do? I started doing some research and pulling up some old data around Charleston, around Chattanooga, and around Boulder, Colorado. And I was looking at how, what was that impetus that turned them into great startup, what great entrepreneurial communities is. And you can chase it back to a couple of things. Specifically in Charleston and Boulder, it was 9-11. Boulder and Charleston got built by people moving to their towns after 9-11, leaving New York City and moving to their towns after 
right? There's a whole book about this called The Boulder Thesis, right? And the, there's white papers out of the College of Charleston about what happened there. I went and I pulled that data off the internet and I reread it. Chattanooga happened because of Google Fiber coming to town, right? So that was the impetus. The electricity company actually paid Google to come into town and did this whole campaign about the gig city, right? That was, that was Chattanooga's impetus. How could I make COVID-19 Savannah's igniting factor? Uh, so I wrote a set of uh, incentives. I took an old set of incentives that we had used to move employees of companies that were relocating for $2,500 and rewrote them to be $2,000 for a remote worker with a $500 incentive to a local person if they passed that word along to try and get some viralness to it, right? So I just took something that already existed, rewrote it. March 23rd, I sent it to my boss and I waited. Really was hoping to get it approved in the April board meeting. No, didn't make the agenda for the April board meeting. Finally got it on the May agenda, and everyone was really leery. I was leery. We, we passed it. We got this incentive approved, um, and then we waited because I was petrified to do a press release about it. We did spend money. We did do a press release. We got over 50 nationwide press hits as well as international press hits about it, mostly because of timing, but I was petrified because of COVID, right? What if we spiked? What if we did the press release, and two weeks later, Savannah is the center point of COVID-19 in Georgia, right? Or what if uh, at the same time we had the Black Lives Matter campaign going on? What if vandals, the, the Black Lives Matter turns into vandalism and looting like it did in Atlanta and some of the other cities in Savannah and now we're in the national press for that as well as my COVID remote worker incentive, right? So really nervous, finally pulled the plug on uh, June 10th and, and here we are, We've had, um, I've had over 300 people reach out to me Personally, I've talked to 300 people that want to move to Savannah, Georgia. Um, I know of 80 people that have moved, and so far 40 people have received the actual $2,000 incentive. And that's how I became an expert at remote work. Um, you know, March 2020, um, everyone was sent home, right? Pre-March 2020, about 20% of the population could telecommute some of the time. March 2020, uh, 100 million people were sent home to work from home. Right? So that, that was the, the expedite, expedited all this, right? But then now, even now, right? 16 months later, you have to look back and you have to be like, okay, where are we at? Like, I'm still petrified that people are gonna get called back to the office. Right? I've got 80 people that have moved, but they could move home because all they need is a laptop and broadband, right? So I'm a little concerned the world's opening up, but we also have the variant, and so, so there's a lot of in, like, insecurity right now. But let's talk about work, right? PwC did a study that basically said it's been hugely successful, that people are just as productive as home. Employers are happy, employees are happy with remote work, right? These are the companies, over 70 companies have committed to work from home forever. Now you, you do find they're almost all tech, right? The, the outlier there was nationwide insurance, right? Here's like a 200 year old company that's embracing remote work. They're closing down their towers in Omaha to embrace remote work. So there's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of companies. I've got, personally, uh, three Facebook employees just moved to Savannah, two Slack, that's kind of the purple logo. I've always had some Oracle and Microsoft people in town, um, but, but these are companies that are committed forever. So this is your target market, <laughs> right? And here's a great quote from uh, the, head of Salesforce's HR department, right? 
it used to be like tech companies, the way they thought about it, like I would spend $6,000 on chairs and two monitors for my new tech hires, right? They got a MacBook Pro, they got a really high-end Herman Miller chair, and they had multiple monitors and a standing desk, right, for their office, right? $6,000, like that goes into your budget as a startup founder and your investors are going, why are you spending that much money? I'm like, that's how you get tech workers, right? Well, it's not about that anymore. They want flexibility, they want freedom. They're gonna outfit their own home office, right? They're gonna want bonuses to outfit that home office, but, but you're no longer responsible for that. So it's not really about what is the experience in the office. Cor corporate culture has to change. It's, this is a whole new industry that's gonna rise from this, right? All right, so why do you want remote workers in your town? And I do believe any town can go after this. I spent seven years at ATDC going across the state of Georgia telling towns how to do this, right? And part of this is like know who you want to go after. Um, but really, it, this is about high income, right? The average, 57% of all remote workers make over $100,000 a year compared to 27% of office workers. Right, so $100,000 a year is about two times the average county wage in my county, Chatham County, right? So those people have twice as much uh, money to spend, right? And even though Savannah's a pretty expensive place to live, right, if you wanna live in town, it's pretty expensive, it's significantly lower than New York or California or Seattle, Washington, where these people are coming from. Right, so it's significantly cost of living is really low for them, even though we think it's high, right? They want quality of life, right? You have to remember that's different for everybody, right? When I first started my campaigns, I was doing a lot from here. This is sheltering at home in, in the Savannah region is paddleboarding, stand-up paddleboarding and kayaking and biking and, right? But there's just as many people that want that city life. So that downtown Savannah artsy, food-centered experience, rooftop desk, decks, uh, rooftop de you know, bars and the shipping containers and boating. So you have to think about what assets you have to attract these workers and everybody's view is different. So you have to start thinking about that. And then once they get there, they're interested in getting engaged. Pretty much every single person that has moved to Savannah, Georgia in my little tribe of people, those 40 people, 70 people, is how can I help? Right? How can I help you, Jen, make Savannah a better place for techies? So they do want to get involved. That's why you want them. It is competitive. These are other cities. I'll be honest, I copied Tulsa. I didn't make this up. I'm not that smart. Right? I copied Tulsa. Tulsa and Topeka are both offering, all of those I think are offering ten dollars to $15,000 for people to move there. Uh, Topeka's got a really interesting program that helps you get a mortgage on your house if you buy a house there, which I think is just brilliant, because if you buy a house, you're gonna stay, right? And um, I only offer 2,000, but I just looked at it as I have a better product to sell, right? I, with Savannah or Tulsa, where you can choose, right? So um, the other thing to think about is, is that you gotta know your target market. So how do you go after this group, right? I chose $2,000 very intentionally. One, it was very easy for me to get approval because we already were offering $2,500 to companies' employees that moved, right? The second part of that was I didn't really want outsiders, per se. I wanted people that love Savannah to come back and live. That could be a SCAD alumni, 
right? That could be a student that went to high school there and moved to Atlanta or San Francisco and now wants to come back. That could be a, um, somebody that visited. 14 million people visit Savannah, Georgia every year, right? And if it, this is a place that you come every year because you just love Savannah, Georgia, why not live there? Hashtag choose Savannah was our image campaign on there, right? So find out who you want, figure out ways to reach those people. It's really great if they already love your community. So if they're alumni of your high school, they're alumni of, of universities near you, right? If they have that personal connection with your town already or somebody in that town, it's gonna be easier to reach them. Create your offer, right? We came up with this $2,000. We didn't have a budget for it last year. I took my travel budget because I wasn't traveling during 2020 and said, well, we, I had $100,000 set aside for conferences and this and that, so that's 50 people. We can move 50 people here with my travel budget. Let's see what happens, right? This year we have a different budget, but, uh, but we didn't have one when we started. And then get it out there. We were very successful with our press release. Um, that was timing. I wouldn't count on it. Um, we got very lucky, like I said earlier. I would think about alumni association and I would try and activate word of mouth, right? That's where I did the referral fees. So if somebody in town referred another, like one of their colleagues to move here, they get $500 and that can start a little bit of viralness to it, right? So I would think about word of mouth, alumni associations, things like that. And then the biggest mistake I made was I didn't have a plan for handling the inbound inquiries. So again, over 300 people literally called me. Within probably the first four months was most of those calls. Literally called me. And I had to take every call, right? And so, uh, and there's nobody else at CETA that can qualify them, unfortunately, because I am a one-man show in the innovation and entrepreneurship space. So I literally had to talk to every single person. And some of them, I, I will say, are a little crazy, right? I've talked to some funeral technicians and some HVAC techs that think they're tech workers. Um, so I think you have to have a plan for inbound. We've gone more to, now we have a kind of standard email that goes out to people. We have an FAQ process and an application process now, but at first we didn't have that. So uh, a couple last points, work from home and, or work from anywhere. WFA does not equal work from home during the pandemic, hmm. okay? The world's opening up, people wanna be together. So that's where this next thing comes into place and this is gonna lead right into Irene's talk on placemaking. Once they come, if you want to keep them, you've got to create a community for them, right? And these are some of the activities that I do all the time to welcome these people in the community. So we've been having outside happy hours since October of 2020, someplace at a bar, an uh, outside bar in Savannah, um, to welcome these people. It's locals that are already part of our tribe, plus the, I email all these folks and say come, right? We ha now have a co-work space, right? We do mentoring, we do all sorts of meetups as the world's opening up. We did a coffee earlier this week for people that don't necessarily like to come to happy hours. They came to, you know, we had 18 people come to a coffee meeting this morning or on Tuesday. So you really have to think about how do I cultivate this community? And it's not a lot of work. It's really, they're smart, passionate people. And if you get them in the room, they take care of themselves. You just need to figure out how to get them in the room so that they meet each other. So it's all about community. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Irene because she's gonna talk about placemaking and building that community. Thank you, Jen. Good afternoon, everyone. Can y'all hear me okay? All right, wonderful, great. All right, so it's kind of hard to follow this, um, but let me tell you, so over the past few months, or the uh, national media has really spent a lot of time focusing on the mass exodus 
of city dwellers into small towns. And I have to ask you, so how many of y'all here have had an influx of city dwellers into your small towns across here? Yep, several of them. Um, so, and then about four, two months ago, National Public Radio did a story on this is all great and you have all of these city dwellers moving into the small towns, but the real question is, is if and how are you going to be able to keep them? And, um, you know, broadband is absolutely essential. Everyone should, be, should have access to fast-speed internet. We have to have the jobs and the talent, too. That's absolutely essential. But in order to make sure these people who have moved into your town or your own local homegrown talent that's living there now stays there, is that you all have to invest in creative placemaking. So, what is creative placemaking? And it, I really think that it's when you take your own, your community's unique assets and you leverage them with great design and your local economy and you create an amazing authentic sense of place and really accelerate revitalization. So again, it's taking what you've got, it's being very creative with it and accelerating revitalization. And creative placemaking does matter. The Urban Land Institute has for over 10 years researched, um, a, done a lot of research and developed a lot of resources for creative placemaking, as well as the National Endowment for the Arts and Americans for the Arts. But there's a huge economic impact. Um, Ed McMahon, who is a former fellow of the Urban Land Institute, states it very well. I'm not going to read the quote to you. I hope some of y'all can see it. But basically, he's creative placemaking is placemaking on steroids. Um, it is really, um, you know, when, when you have creative placemaking, people do stay longer. They tell their friends about coming to your really great town. They're going to spend more money, and they're going to come back. And that's what it's all about here. Um, but it is great for business. It's great for the local economy. And it does matter here in South Carolina as well. How many of you love going to, and let's just talk South Carolina, but you love going to Charleston and walking around um, Spoleto. You wanna go look at music, you wanna go, I mean, look at galleries, listen to music. Um, let's see, who else is, let's talk about Traveler's Rest. How many of you like to go to Traveler's Rest and just hang out, ride your bike there, um, have a, a beer maybe, depending on which, which end of the, um, of the trip is on Swamp Rabbit Trail. Um, there's some great art there. But again, think about those places where you go and you get out and you walk around and you want to experience it and you're spending a lot of money. But the arts alone, and, and this is, we're working with 2018 data right now because um, this is kind of pre-COVID, but you can see here, but um, in 19, in, um, in 2018, there was a, um, a 9.7 billion impact of the arts here in the state of South Carolina. And I think that's very conservative and it's been amplified, I think, even beyond COVID. So, but the Arts Commission here is investing um, heavily in creative placemaking. Um, they have been supporting the arts, the artists in our state throughout COVID, um, and they have lots of resources for communities across South Carolina to, again, to, uh, to build, own, and leverage the arts in our communities. Um, the Brookings Institute even has gotten into this game about restoring prosperity. Strong leadership is essential. Success requires visioning and planning. We're all in it together. Place matters, and we have to take advantage of it. Creative placemaking 
matters, and creative placemaking does equal prosperity. And it's all about authenticity, too, um, because you, you need to capitalize on what your own unique assets are. Um, and this is not, um, I mean, let's see, Andrew talked about location envy today, and we've all had a little bit of location envy, right? Like, I wish I could be like, um, and I'll, I'll go back to Traveler's Rest, I'm going to pick up, you know, so I mean, I wish we had a trail like Traveler's Rest. Have you heard that before, Mayor Huff? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, there, there's a little bit of envy there. You want to be like somebody else, but what this is saying is that to our own self be true. Look at what your own community has and build on those assets. One of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. And there's a scene in Apollo 13 that I just think cinches that movie. And it's when they know, okay, the, the astronauts are up in space. They have no clue how they're going to get them safely back down to Earth. And so what they do is they have all of the engineers back at NASA. How many of y'all seen this movie? Y'all like, okay. So they have all the engineers back at NASA. Then say, okay, here's everything those astronauts have with them up in this capsule floating around in space. Figure it out. They only had a few things that they knew that they had to work with, and they had to figure it out. And they got the astronauts safely home. And I cry every time that movie happens, every time I watch it. But that is, to me, this is all about making gumbo. And for those of you who don't like gumbo or haven't eaten gumbo, I'm really sorry. Um, but I'm a, a South Mississippi girl with a good bit of Cajun in me, too. Now, gumbo is one of the most delicious dishes you can make ever. But gumbo got its start because you had to take what you had at hand and put it together in a really delicious way. And you know, down in the bayou, down in southern Mississippi and other places where they really started making really good gumbo and even in the West Indies and other places, you just took the ingredients you had on hand and you started making something pretty. So you had to start with that roux, right? How many of y'all ever made a good roux? If you'll notice there, all right, so that's a penny next to my cast iron pot, you know, where I make my, my gumbo, and good roux is the color of a copper penny. Any of y'all know that? Okay, all right, good. So I've got a good crew here. But you have to keep stirring. You keep adding all of your ingredients. You keep stirring. You keep building your gumbo. You're taking all of your own authentic ingredients. Now, I use my mom and daddy's recipe for gumbo. It never tastes like theirs. Why? Because I'm adding my own little stuff to it, right? and you keep stirring until you get this delicious pot of gumbo. The other thing to realize too, gumbo take, good gumbo takes time. You don't just come home at five o'clock in the afternoon and whip up a bowl of gumbo. Some of you might can't, but you really can't. It just, it takes time. And you, again, you gotta keep stirring. And so what on earth does this have to do with what's happening in your cities and towns? And I do think that creating Authentic, vibrant downtowns and cities is a light making a bowl, a big old pot of gumbo. Because you've got to have a recipe or a master plan or a vision. You have to have that, you know, your pot and the right spoon to do it. Just like you have to have government and you have to have infrastructure. You've got to have broadband. You know, then you've got to have, you know, the quality of life stuff, which to me are just like all the other ingredients that you add. 
Every town and city represented right here has different stuff, different ingredients. And that's what makes it so wonderful. So you put it all together, you take what's unique and what's wonderful about your own towns, and you stir it up. That's creative placemaking. That's making good gumbo. So let me ask some of you this. Um, what are some of the things, if you were given a magic wand, and when we go into communities and do some um, master planning and visioning, we like to say, OK, giving you a magic wand, you know, um, and you get one wish. What is that one thing that you would do to turn around your downtown, to revitalize your downtown? So what, what are some of the things that y'all want? Anybody? Restaurants. What else? Just one restaurant? Hotel. A hotel. Yeah. What else? Trails. Everybody wants trails? People? That's, that's a good one. Yeah, got to have people. So, well, I'll have to tell you, after many years of doing master plans and envisioning and strategic planning, it, every town basically wants some of the same things. And this is a list of them here. You know, you want boutique hotels or you want a hotel. You want something besides fast food in downtown. Who, who doesn't want a microbrewery these days, right? Who doesn't want a wine shop somewhere or a bakery? Um, you, you know, um, family-friendly um, family entertainment, you know, that, that's downtown, a great movie theater. These are all the things that people want. All of these places, these are third places. And third places, as some of you know, are the, third, uh, the first place is your home. Second place is where you work, which can be anywhere now, right? <laughs> it's not necessarily the office. And the third place is where people go to gather outside of home and work. Um, Ray Oldenburg is the one who coined this phrase in his book, The Great Good Place, many years ago. I highly recommend reading that. But people crave third places. And I think particularly now, since we've not had to meet, we've not been able to go to our third places for so long, that these places are becoming more and more important. Um, it's where people um, go and share ideas. I'll tell you a lesson that we learned when we were working on the master plan for the city of Hartsville is, you know, you've got Coker College, the Governor's School for Science and Math there. You've got Sunoco, Duke Energy. I mean, there's, there's a lot of young professionals there. There are a lot of students. There are a lot of faculty. And when we were working on downtown, we kept talking about, oh, this is what Hartsville needs to do in order to attract the millennials, to attract the Gen Zs. Well, I have in the Gen Xers, and I have to tell you, I was kind of put in my place when we were doing one of our presentations because we had some baby boomers who stood up and some retirees who stood up and said, wait a minute, we want that too. Don't just sit here and do it for the millennials and the young professionals. We want, you know, the, everybody wants it. Everybody wants places where they can walk or where they can gather and be with friends and create community. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, um, and, and Jen talked about this a little bit. I have a million cups. So, but again, you want to provide those places in your downtown where people can come together and ideas can collide. Amazing things happen when people come together and ideas collide. Um, one of the things you have to do when you think about creative placemaking is you have to kind of change your perspective a little bit. Um, so anybody flown through Atlanta in the last little bit? 
or ever flown through Atlanta. You know, they say all Southerners have to go through Atlanta to um, go to heaven. But, um, but, <laughs> but, he, but this is, a few months ago, we were going to visit one of my daughters and her husband who lives in Austin, Texas. And we're going through the terminal, rushing through there. And this is what the terminal looked like. I mean, nothing special. Well, then the, getting over to the very next terminal, it's this. Who wouldn't want to walk through this and speed through this? And there's a sense of joy because it then becomes an experience. So you can have blah, you know, it serves its function, or you can experience joy somewhere. So again, let's talk about that perspective. How many of you have alleyways in your downtown that you're like, what are we gonna do with this alley? Anybody have an alley that's kind of sitting there and kind of scary? All right, so when you think about these different elements in your downtown, don't just limit them to the purpose of what they are. So instead of an alley, think of what it can become. Um, in Hartsville with Mantissa Row, this is a vibrant connector. It's got lights at night. They have parties out there. They have, you know, people sit out there and have a glass of wine or eat. So it's a wonderful thing. The one in the middle is Spartanburg, right in downtown. And it is just a really nice connector from the main street to some other parts of town. And then West Columbia. Alleyways become canvases for really great local art. So again, it's all the perspective. The same thing with your streets and your sidewalks. Don't let it just be a street and a sidewalk. That's boring. You know, what else can it become? A crosswalk doesn't have to be the DOT colors and here's what it is or the stamp concrete. Celebrate your own local community. I love what they've done. Um, those are the sidewalks, but in Spartanburg, like Converse, close to where they have their music department, piano keys. Y'all can all do this. You have something wonderful, so think differently about your, your streets. Blank walls, again, they become canvases and help um, really add something wonderful to your downtown. I love what Inman has done right here. Um, the one at the top, I love you so much. That's my daughter and son-in-law in Austin. Y'all, this is a corner in, on South Congress Street in Austin. It was kind of a you know, ratty area not too long ago, and it's really starting to come back. People stand in line for 30 minutes to have their picture made in front of this blank wall on a corner. I love you so much and take pictures. Proposals happen there. This is easy, easy stuff that can happen. All right, storefronts. Any of y'all have empty storefronts in your downtown area here? We're going through. Okay, let me tell you. You don't need to have empty storefronts. Even if you don't have the businesses to go into them right now, the most important thing for you to do is to put something in these storefronts, but not storage. Storage should never be allowed to happen to storefronts. All of you have got um, high schools, maybe you have a community college or a major university. You've probably got garden clubs or you have local artists in town. Put something interesting in these storefronts. The city of Casey has empty storefronts in the area that they're revitalizing. They found these amazing historic photos and had a printer there print these historic photos of Casey. And so now people are getting 
is that me? Now people um, are getting to learn a little bit about the history of Casey in these empty storefronts. The biggest killer to some people coming, driving through your town, looking for places to relocate, is to drive through town and to see a bunch of empty storefronts. But if they're driving through town and they see something celebrating, you know, a local school, and I do have to say one thing, so that middle one right there where there was an empty storefront in Starkville, Mississippi, home of the national championship, Bulldogs, my school, so um, <clears throat> so you can do that. I had, to, I had to get that in. But anyway, just think very differently. Do all that you can. Build some local partnerships and engage different groups. Do some cross-merchandising in your empty storefronts. Just don't let them remain empty. And parking spaces can become parklets. Um, never underestimate the power of lights and do, having some fun with some signs. Let, let your, your community speak. Empty lots can become community gardens. They can become a great place to swing. Have some public art. It can be functional. It can be weird. It can be local art, but just get some local art in there. And I want to show you this. In the middle, this is um, Richland Library. They're North Main. They needed a gate. Well, instead of doing just any gate, they engaged the community and created art now for these gates. So engage the community in any way you can. Um, genus loci, spirit of place. Andrew talked about that earlier today and how important it is. What is your thing? Um, and I'll, you know, the town of Lexington has gotten an amphitheater. That amphitheater is their thing. It's bringing hundreds and hundreds of people downtown. Oxford, Mississippi builds on William Faulkner. Um, Wilson, North Carolina is building on Vala Simpson, an artist. I mean, so you name it. Greenwood has got Park Seed. They have this amazing flower festival and topiaries all over the city for like a month. So what is unique to your community? And it needs to be walkable. All creative places have to be walkable. And I'm going to just challenge each one of you to go out into your communities, get a group of people together, draw like, go out, everybody walk out about a quarter of a mile. We call those ped sheds. Go out about a quarter of a mile and everybody take notes. Was there anything interesting? How many empty storefronts were there? Were the sidewalks passable? Was it welcoming? Just kind of do an inventory because you want that quarter mile, that walkable downtown to be interesting and wonderful and vibrant and work towards that. Um, <coughs> this is the Urban Land Institute. And again, just some, some tips on creative placemaking. I will say this, it's local, it's local, it's local and what you do. So the one thing about creative placemaking that you want, it makes, it's going to say like, I made you look, I made you have fun, have fun, I gave you a different perspective, I made you experience our town in a unique way, I'm going to make you come back and, you know, and then spend some money. It's all about being authentic, it's all about public art in third places. Um, and creative placemaking tells your own town's very unique story, just like Andrew told us today. You cannot do creative placemaking. You can bring in all the broadband you want and have jobs there, but if you're not being creative about how you leverage your own unique community assets, you're just going to be like any old town. You're just going to be Can-O-City instead of a wonderful, delicious pot of gumbo, and that in the end, we all want people jumping for joy and having a fantastic time in our hometowns. Get creative, use your authentic assets. So, okay. I'll turn that back to you.